Let's pray together. As we've just read, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so we ask, Father, that you would give efficacy to the preaching of your word, that through the operation of the Holy Spirit, we may hear your word, but not only hear it, but keep it, that we would live in conformity with your precepts and finally obtain everlasting salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Something that one of my teachers uh, said a number of years ago has haunted me ever since. The teacher's name is Haddon Robinson, and he, is, uh, he literally wrote the book on preaching. But he was also named one of the 12 most effective preachers in the English-speaking world, and he taught hundreds of students, thousands of students, how to preach. And on top of that, he was a man of integrity. But one time I heard him say that out of all the sermons that he'd preached, he'd ever, only ever heard a few that did a good job of accurately explaining the gospel. That really haunts me to this day. This man who uh, had heard many, many sermons, I heard him once say that, um, you know, he would listen to students preach and he said the real miracle was that he was still a Christian after hearing all these uh, students preach the gospel for the first time. But uh, he not only heard students preach, he'd heard accomplished uh, preachers preach. And he said in all his uh, years of teaching, preaching, and listening to preaching, he'd only ever heard the gospel proclaimed clearly a few times. And so today, I know that I'm not going to overestimate my uh, ability to do this. He heard me preach. Uh, I don't think that, I, obviously, I didn't make the cut of uh, having uh, uh, cleared that goal. But if there's one person I trust to actually do this well, it's Isaiah. And so today, my hope is, even if I don't do a good job of explaining the gospel clearly, I'm pretty sure Isaiah is going to do a good job of explaining the gospel clearly. And so what I want to simply do is to look at the passage that we just read in Isaiah chapter 40 and ask Isaiah, Isaiah, what is the gospel? What is the news that we need to believe about Jesus, that we need to receive and hear, and that will lead us to eternal life? Well, today, I want to just give you three points of good news from Isaiah chapter 40. And here's the first piece of good news that Isaiah has for us in verses 1 and 2 of this passage. There's hope for us despite our sins. Here's the good news that Isaiah gives to us, to people who really need good news. There's hope for us despite our sins. Again, verses 1 and 2, I love these refreshing words. Uh, as we're going to see, if you read chapters 1 to 39, you would really love these words. Hear Isaiah speaking to people who need to hear good news. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she's received from the Lord's hand double for their sins. If you read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, you would realize that Isaiah has not been delivering good news to the people of Israel. He's been talking to them about a serious problem, sin. In the first 39 chapters, chapter after chapter, you have Isaiah confronting them for rebellion, their idolatry, and their injustice. 
In the first 39 chapters, Isaiah promises that, that God will judge them by sending other nations to conquer them. In fact, if you just read the preceding chapter, chapter 39, a short chapter, it's a chapter of judgment, that God is going to bring judgment against their king, Hezekiah, and that he, uh, Israel would be exiled in Babylon. In verse 6 of chapter 39, the message of the Lord through Isaiah was this, nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Now I want to pause there and say, uh, you know, we need the word of judgment that scripture brings, just as they did back then. We need to be confronted with our sinfulness. We need the articulation from the word of God that we are poor, desperate sinners who deserve nothing but God's judgment, that apart from him, there's no hope for us. And Isaiah does a good job of this. Chapter after chapter, you've fallen short. You've rebelled against God. You're in your sin. There's no hope. And he articulates our greatest problem, the problem that all of us here have that we've fallen short of the very reasonable standards of a holy God, and we deserve nothing but his judgment. In other words, the context for beginning chapter 40 is the overwhelming sense of our failure before God to measure up to his standards. Now, you and I know that, uh, as I talk to people, I don't encounter many people who don't carry a deep sense of personal failure. As I encounter people, uh, if you talked in Toronto about sin, You'll get a lot of people saying, sin, what are you talking about? I don't believe in that outmoded stuff. But if you say to somebody, do you have a deep sense that you don't measure up? Do you have a deep sense that you're falling short somehow? That there's something desperately and deeply wrong with you? Do you ever have the sense that there's just something fundamentally flawed about you? And no matter how hard you try, you can't fix it. As I've talked to people, I discover people will say yes. I recognize in myself, I don't meet my own standards. And Isaiah comes along and says, not only do you not meet your own standards, you don't meet the standards of a holy God. You have fallen short. You stand condemned before him. And in light of this failure, a failure that many of us feel acutely this morning, Isaiah speaks on behalf of God and says, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, and that she's received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The, the beautiful news this morning, here's the good news that Isaiah has for us. Although we fall short, although we deserve nothing but God's judgment, this morning God is speaking words of comfort to us. His intentions for you are good. His ultimate purpose is not your destruction but your redemption. His goal for you is not death, but life. And his ultimate goal is not your judgment, but your restoration. And the great news about all of this, by the way, is God has a very clear eye of who you are. What a horrible thing it would be if, if God extended this, these words of comfort to us, not knowing the truth about us. If God thought that we were better than we were, and he said, okay, I've got words of comfort, but it's based on an image that we're projecting to God. But God has seen our real selves at our worst. And he speaks these words of comfort to us saying, I come with these words that you need to hear. I want you to notice in verse one, he says that your warfare is ended. Uh, he was, Isaiah just announced, warfare is coming, you know, a siege is coming. Uh, there's punishment for your sins coming. Discipline, really. 
But here he says your warfare has ended. The word warfare here could be translated struggle. And Isaiah is looking ahead to the point where uh, after their exile, which is still in the future, that that is a temporary thing, that on the other side of their exile, there's an expiry date, that we will receive in this world discipline for our sins, but that discipline is temporary, not permanent. God will never abandon his people. And not only that, but he says, he goes on to say, your greatest problem, their greatest problem, their sin has been dealt with. Her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What great news. Her iniquity is pardoned. What he's saying here is sin needs to be paid for. We all understand that sin causes great damage. Uh, The past few years, I've witnessed the brutal reality of sin. Uh, For all the people who say sin is consequence-free, like everybody just has fun, I've seen the damage that sin costs, the relational damage, the damage to the soul, the deep damage. Like Sin is like a bomb that goes off, and it creates devastation everywhere. And here, Isaiah is coming along and saying, yeah, that's a problem. But here's one of the greatest problems. Your sin has not only caused all this damage, but it's, it's caused a, a rift between you and God. But I'm coming, Isaiah says, to proclaim from God himself that payment has been made to cover the cost of your sin. We didn't make that payment. Somebody's got to pay the cost for our sin. And Isaiah comes along and says, you've received not just enough to cover your sin. Have you ever had that experience of, do I have enough money? You know, a cash-only place and you're, you know, do I have enough money and you're just counting the, the pennies, uh, pennies don't even, in the States they exist, so work with me here. You're in the States and you're pulling out the nickels and the dimes. Do I have enough to cover this? Here he says, not, you're not scraping by. Payment has been made for double. Like double, there's more than enough grace. There's nobody here who's coming and God is looking in his pocket saying, do I have enough to cover the sins of these people? Double for all her sins. Jesus Christ has made the payment for the sins of all who trust him so lavishly that there's nobody who's ever sinned and come close to exhausting the grace that's available through Jesus Christ. And Isaiah whispers these words hundreds of years before the arrival of Jesus. He's acknowledged that our sins are a serious problem. They're an affront to a holy God. But he also says, your sins will not have the final word. What is the final word? The final word is that God is speaking words of comfort and tenderness to you despite your sins. That God's intentions, knowing the worst about us, are still good for us. And if you've trusted Jesus Christ, you can see in God not a frown but a smile. Not distance but nearness. Friends, this morning, how does God look upon you this morning? If you have have come today feeling the weight of sin, if you've come this morning just feeling a deep sense of shame for things that you have done, uh, things maybe years ago that you're still carrying with you, he speaks words of comfort and tenderness. In fact, I want you to notice in this passage, he calls them my people and he calls himself your God. He's still identifying, he's saying you're his and he's still saying I'm yours. He calls you, even when you're in exile, and says, 
I have these words of comfort for you. You can have glad expectations of God. You can come today, even as a sinner, knowing that his intentions for you are good, that provision has been made for your sins. The gospel is not good news for the worthy. Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful that we come every week and it's not like, would you come, all, all of you who have measured up this week, come and we're going to sing praises to God. Aren't you grateful that the message of the gospel is not that there's good news for good people and the good news is you need to be even gooder or better? Aren't you glad that the message is there's hope for weary sinners who are well aware of their failures, that our sins against the holy God are not the final word, that despite our sins, God looks upon us with tenderness and compassion. There's hope for all of us this morning. It doesn't matter how much you've sinned. There's nobody here who doesn't need this good news. And unless, unless you are thinking this morning, praise God, because there's probably bad people around me. Praise God, there's grace for them. You know, the other side of this news is there's nobody who doesn't need this good news. There's not one person who isn't in desperate need of the good news of the gospel that Isaiah proclaims here today. Your sins are no obstacle to God's compassion. Full payment has been made for your sins. God looks at you through Jesus with tenderness and compassion today, and he has words of compassion and hope for you. Secondly, I want you to notice in verses three and five, uh, verses one and two say there's hope for us despite our sins, and verse, verses three and five build on this. This, this hope for us, despite our sins, is for a reason. It's because God will come. The good news is not because we will measure up. I'm so grateful, by the way. I'm not up here saying, guys, if we just run harder this week, you failed last week, try harder this week. That would be an awful message. That would not be good news. Is it that we need to suffer enough for our earlier sins? Maybe... If I got up here and preached, like, friends, you've sinned, verses, chapters 1 to 39, you've sinned. How do we make up for this sin? Well, you need to suffer. If you suffer enough, God will look at your suffering and say that balances out your previous sins. That would not be good news. Here's the good news that Isaiah gives us, that our hope comes solely from the activity of God. We do nothing to save ourselves. God does everything. We simply receive. Verses 3 to 5. A voice, this passage, by the way, is quoted in every gospel in the New Testament. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. What he's saying here is, what's our hope? The Lord himself is coming. And he says, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And here's gonna, what's going to happen when our Lord comes. Every valley is going to be lifted up. Every mountain is going to be, and hill will be made low. Uneven ground will become level. The rough places will be made a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here's what he says. Here's where our hope comes from, not from trying harder, not from suffering enough to pay for our sins, but where does our hope come from? The Lord is coming. In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. God is coming, so get ready. We could never come to God, and so God came to us. He is coming to our aid, and I love what it says here. Where is he coming? He's coming to us in the wilderness. He is not meeting us 
in the place of where we have it all together. The whole world is a desert, writes Tim Keller. There's death, there's disease, there's war, there's poverty, there's strife, there's brokenness of all sorts. The whole world is like this. Aren't you glad that the Lord comes to meet us in the desert? We couldn't leave the wilderness to find him, and so he's entering the wilderness to find us. The Lord comes to save us. And I love what it says here. It says that when he comes, he's going to bring radical change. He says valleys are going to be lifted. Mountains are going to be flatted, flattened. Uneven ground is going to become level. Rough places will be made a plain. What does this mean? Ray Orland explains this way. He is talking about a new moral topography, a new social landscape. He is talking about the disruptive advance of salvation. And friends, this is, I love what he's saying here. He is talking about depression being relieved, pride being flattened, troubled personalities becoming placid, difficult people becoming easy to get along with. Man, we live in this world. All you have to do is pick up the, the newspaper or Google News or Apple News, wherever you get your news, and you just realize how much is wrong with this world. And here Isaiah says, when the Lord comes, he's just going to, everything that's wrong is going to be made right. Everything that's low that should be high, I'm going to lift. Everything that's high that should be low, I'm going to put down. I will make this world right again. For those of us who need radical change, our hope is not that we fix things. Our hope is the Lord comes and does this. But there's one more thing this voice tells us, this voice in the wilderness that we come to understand is John the Baptist. And here it is. Everyone is going to see his glory. It says, all the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know, right now, um, you know, we're worshiping. Isn't it good? Like I just came in this morning ready to worship. And then as the songs were sung, I was just like, I am so glad to be here. You know, I thought as I was driving here today, you know, all the apartments and condos and houses around here that don't know what we're doing here. And I kind of like, I wish everyone was in on this, right? I wish everyone knew. In the first coming of Jesus, this is a partial fulfillment because John 1 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as from the uh, only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews, which we've looked at already, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Friends, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the glory of God. Uh, as you look at the Gospels, as you encounter Jesus, as we've come to the table today, you've seen the glory of God. But the reality is, it's just a preview. When Jesus came the first time, they saw his glory, but his glory was still partly veiled. People saw Jesus and didn't recognize his glory fully. But Isaiah here points us to a future day when it won't be just some of us seeing a partial glimpse of the glory of Jesus. But there'll be one day when the whole world sees the glory of Jesus. We long for that day. Titus 2 verse 13 says that we are waiting for the blessed hope, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There will be a day right now, many ignore the glory of Jesus at their peril. 
But there will be a day when his glory will be unignorable, where all flesh will see and behold the glory of Jesus. Isaiah says there's hope. And this hope is for desperate sinners, but this hope doesn't come from us. It comes from somebody coming. It comes from the Lord himself coming. It comes from the arrival of a king. As we approach Christmas, we've seen our hope. Jesus has come. He's come into the wilderness to die for our sins. But friends, we're longing for the second coming. We're longing for when God will come and set this world right. When the Savior who has conquered sin and death, who brought healing, who cast out evil spirits, we're longing for him to come again. And in response, we rely not on our own work, but on him. This is why we both celebrate and long for more. This is why we celebrate the arrival of Jesus and say, Jesus, come again. Finish the work. This is why we have a desperate longing for mountains to be flattened, for uneven ground to be made level, for everything sad to become untrue, for somehow everything being greater for having once been broken and lost. Friends, this is our hope. There's a third piece of good news. The first piece of good news is there's comfort for us. God is speaking words of comfort to us. And the second piece of good news is that it's going to be because the Lord comes. If here's a third piece of good news this morning, you can count on it. There's hope for us despite our sins because God will come and you can count on it. Verses six to eight say, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? And here's the words, all flesh is grass, all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. And here's what he's saying, I think. Uh, They've just heard the news they're going to exile. They see the obstacles Like, good news that God is coming and he's going to do all this stuff in the world, good news. But we got Babylon here. Like, I think it was, I heard a preacher once say, we see the challenges of our life in video and we hear the words of scripture in audio. It's like, the audio is good, but the video, the high definition video of the problems of our life seems overwhelming. And we're like, good news, but what about my big problems that are confronting me? And God says to Isaiah, Guys, Babylon is like grass. It looks so powerful. It looks like so almighty. It's going to like be gone. It's going to be gone in no time. The grass withers. The flower fades. But I'll tell you what you can count on. The word of the, God, the, word of the Lord abides forever. This week, Toronto went crazy. Do you know why? What were you doing Friday. Was anybody refreshing social media and X? There is a baseball player coming to Toronto. His flight is, I saw somebody, like, he's over Guelph right now, and they're taking a picture of a plane. Like, he's coming. He's coming. And Isaiah would say to us, I, I read in the star this morning. Here's what the star says about our hope. There's no short-term recovery from this. It's saying Toronto suffered a big trauma Jays fans thought they were getting the best present that only a a baseball fan could ask for 
only to have it taken away. And then this is how the article concludes. Nothing short of a run to the World Series will heal that type of emotional scar that we carry right now. You know what Isaiah would say? Baseball players are like grass. (laughs) Your career. What are you relying on? What are you getting excited about? This is going to change everything. This is our hope. We can pin our hope on this. And Isaiah turns to us and says, don't put your hope in any rumors. Don't put your hope on that next promotion. Don't put that hope on anything other than the word that is being spoken to you. You can take it to the bank. Everything else you'll take to the bank and the teller's gonna look at it and say, we need to put a hold on this because we're not so sure it's gonna clear. But there's one promise that always clears, you can count on it. And that's exactly what Isaiah has given us this morning. Friends, all of life is temporary. All of life is fleeting. All of life is unreliable. There's only one thing you can count on. And it's that the promise made in God's word in this passage will stand forever. Everything in this world seems more reliable than God's word. Everything in this world seems like it's more, don't believe it. God's word is the only thing you can trust. And it's the only thing you can last. And so here's the message, the good news of the gospel. I think Haddon Robinson would probably conclude Isaiah has done a very good job of explaining the gospel in this passage. There's hope for you and me despite our sins because God himself will come and you can count on it. Take it to the bank, friends. Build your life upon it. Stake everything on this. This is our only hope. Well, what should we do as a result of this? Verse 9 tells us how we should respond to this. We receive the good news. What do we do about it? Verse 9 says, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Here's the action step that Isaiah calls us to take. Shout it. Friends, before we tell others of this good news, you've got to believe it. If you came today not trusting in Jesus Christ, I plead with you. You will never hear better news than what Isaiah has given us this morning. Believe it. Receive it. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Put all the chips on the square of Jesus and what he's done for you. Rely on it. Build your life around it. Receive these words of comfort for yourself today. But if you've heard this good news, friends, shout it. Let others know. Build your life around it and let as many people know this good news as well. It can be as simple as being a good repenter. Uh, When you blow it at work, to own up to your mistakes and say, the reason I can do this is because I am not basing my worth on me getting it right. I'm basing my worth on me being a forgiven person. I am basing, you don't have to preach, you don't have to get on us. You can just say, I'm going to be quick to repent because I've realized I'm not good enough, but there is My hope is found in someone who is good enough. Uh, Whatever it is, just shout it. 
Let other people know the reality of your hope. Now, I know a lot of us think that we're not very good evangelists, but I'm challenged by these words by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, the world rings with praise. You'll hear lovers praising their mistresses, readers praising their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside. We praise our favorite game. Have you played this new game? It's amazing. We praise weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, flowers. And he goes on, sometimes even politicians and scholars. And C.S. Lewis says, just as we spontaneously praise whatever we value, and whatever we value, we, we call others to say, isn't she lovely? Isn't it glorious? Isn't it magnificent? What if we saw Jesus as being that glorious? What if we, our hearts were so captured by him that we couldn't help but talk and marvel, and it just came out of us, behold our God, behold our God. So friends, the good news is that God speaks words of comfort to all of us, not based on what you have done and I have done. All we've brought to God is our need, but he's brought good news that Jesus has come and dealt decisively with our sins. He's made everything right in this world. He's going to come back and finish the job. And it's all of him. And we get to tell others of this good news. Count on it. Believe it. This is the good news that Isaiah has for us today. Friends, I've been so haunted by what Haddon said. I want you to hear Isaiah today and not only hear this good news, but react in faith, respond in faith, and trust this Jesus today. And so, Lord, I thank you for Isaiah. I thank you for this word for sinners like me who really need to hear the good news that Isaiah has for us. Thank you that Jesus Christ came into the wilderness. Father, we couldn't come to him, so he came to us. And Lord, when he came, he didn't come just uh, unaware of our sins. Lord, he entered this world of brokenness and desperate need and did everything necessary for us to be made right with God. Thank you for Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that in this world of promises, of this is going to change everything, there's only one promise we can count on. And that's the promise that the word of God will abide forever. Lord, every other promise will fail. The promise that, that you have made for us in Jesus will never fail. And so would you help us to respond in faith and trust to this amazing good news? Would you help us to tell as many people about it as possible we ask in the name of Jesus Christ? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Daryl. So just a reminder, uh, we are going to um, go through some of the question and response uh, time now. Uh, if you haven't yet and you'd like to, you can go to slido.com using hashtag gfc.mills. You can either enter a question or um, vote on any of the questions that are there if there's something you see that you would like, uh, like Daryl to adjust. So, Daryl, I'm going to start. There's, there's two questions I think are pretty similar. I'm just going to read them both to you, and you can kind of take... Mm -hmm. Take your cue from them. The first one says, in a season of hardness of heart, how do you fight for gospel hope and joy when every day can be a struggle to believe the gospel? And the second question is, can you recommend any everyday practices that help remind us that our hope is found in God's promises and not our worldly hopes? I think those are very yeah, closely related Yeah, they're questions. very similar. So 
I, I think the first thing is welcome to the club. That's all of us. Uh, we, uh, we forget the gospel on a regular basis, and we go back to putting our hope in our own performance, or else we wallow in our sin and misery, and we just feel this coldness towards God. And uh, again, I think the only hope is to continually come back and every day have practices that remind us the gospel is true. Uh, I don't know. I, I do have some ideas of what those practices are, but I think that it's going to look different for all of us. Like, um, I know it's going to involve the word. It's going to be uh, involving gathering as a body. I think we're too individualistic. So I think we need others to remind us of this truth. So uh, part of it is we need believers to say, hey, like, Brad, you might have forgotten this. God, when he looks at you, he smiles on you. And when somebody tells me that, I'm like, there's not a chance. Like, there's no way. I believe that about you, but there's no way God could look at my life. And have somebody say, no, it's true. It's true for you as well. Uh, so, yeah, I think whatever. Who was it that said, uh, was it Luther that said that we've got to beat our, the gospel into our heads daily? Uh, whatever. I think it was Martin Luther that said that. And just that's a desperate need every day to beat the gospel into our heads and say, today my performance isn't based on what I do, but that he loves me. And he's still for me this morning. I woke up this morning, he's still for me. Uh, we forget daily, we gotta remind ourselves daily. Amen. Um, another one that I saw here that I thought was, was a good question, because it's, it's kind of one of the age old kind of tensions uh, within the Christian faith. So. It kind of ended there, chapters 9 to 11, talking about beholding the greatness of God, right? So the, the question is, can you flesh out the connection between beholding the glory of Jesus and kind of resting in kind of what Jesus has done and working out our own salvation, right? Yeah, And yeah. kind of how those play together. The, uh, everything is a response to beholding the glory of Jesus. When the, the order is always we behold first and then we respond. So when uh, in Exodus 20, uh, what are the Ten Commandments? It's interesting, we always skip to here's what God says we should do, but we forget that uh, verse one of chapter 20 is, I am the Lord, your God, who rescued you out of slavery. Now as a result of this, here's how you should respond. So even in uh, the, the giving of the law, there's gospel. And so it always begins with like, man, we gotta look at Jesus. And also, Years ago, Brad, somebody told me, Daryl, there's, there's a lot of things wrong with your preaching, but I'll tell you one major thing. Uh, and he was right. He said, you don't talk about the Holy Spirit enough. Uh, when you're talking, preaching, like even in response to the gospel, here's what Jesus has done. He says, you don't remind people that we need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's empowering us to do what we can't do in obeying God. So yeah, I think behold the gospel and then move out and actually obey God in the power of the Holy Spirit. He will equip us to do that. Okay, I'm going to reword one of these questions here because it's framed, framed a certain way, but I think we can, um, I mean, the answer is self-evident, I think, but, but how can we reconcile, I guess is what I'll say, how can we reconcile that God both speaks words of comfort to Christians but speaks words of judgment against sin? Right? How can that come from the same God? God's justice and holiness and his compassion and mercy are not opposed to each other. They're... They're not in contradiction to each other. They're, it's the same God. And uh, the, the God who, the only reason that there's pardon for sinners is because his wrath uh, has been, was borne by Christ on behalf of sinners. So as somebody said, it's not like there's an Old Testament God of judgment and a New Testament God of grace. It's the same God all throughout the whole Bible. There's actually more judgment in the New Testament, 
but all that judgment was placed on Christ. Uh, and if we, if we trust in Christ, uh, it's not like we've escaped the judgment. It's just that he's borne that judgment for us so that we don't have to. Amen. Amen. Okay, maybe I will um, just one, one more here. I'm just curious your thoughts on this. I mean, obviously, um, the reference to John the Baptist makes it clear that Isaiah, Isaiah is seeing the first coming of Christ. Do you think there's a sense in which he envisioned both the second coming as well? Yes, I do. Yeah. I believe that uh, there's a double fulfillment here that he's looking to what it was partially, like if you look at uh, the uh, uneven grounds become level, the rough. Why did Jesus perform miracles? He was giving us a preview of what's to come. They weren't just random, like, let me show you my power. He was showing there will be a day when every evil spirit is cast out, where every disease is healed. So his first coming gave us a preview of that, but the ultimate fulfillment will be in the second coming. So I think Isaiah is pointing us to both. Amen. Thank you, Daryl.